0: Fateful moment has arrived, and here they are in the ring. Hello, and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is The History of Sport, the podcast where each episode we dip into that incredibly long history, for a short story. Something in and around the big wide world of sports. Sometimes more concerned with action on the field, sometimes less so. This one will have quite a bit about the events on the field, or in this case, in the ring though we are some way from getting any sort of ring and rule set that you would recognize. Today, we reach back to the 18th century for a glimpse of what would come to be, but was not quite yet, the sport we know now. Today, that story concerns the quote-unquote father of boxing. It should be noted that the father of boxing... Or at least one of them was reckoned to be maybe a better sword fighter. It should be noted that the man who is sometimes identified as boxing's first heavyweight champion regularly entered the ring with a cudgel. This was not exactly the boxing that you're used to. All of this was pretty clearly well before any questions of Spence or Crawford, Manny or Floyd. Top rank or Golden Boy, Fraser or Ali. He was pre-Queensbury rules. He was even pre Broughton rules, something I might talk about some other time. Yet he wasn't so ancient that the International Boxing Hall of Fame couldn't pull his name out as a pioneer in the 1992 class of inductees. They're joining more modern names like Ken Norton, Max Schmeling, and Alexis Marguello. I speak, of course, of James Figg, the London-based champion of England of the early 18th century, and a man who just about met his match in a pipe-fitter from Gravesend named Ned Sutton. James Figg was born in the late 17th century. I've seen a few different dates given in the village of Tame, Oxfordshire. But that wasn't where he'd stay. With his combat prowess, he soon drew the admiration and patronage of the Earl of Peterborough, a noted betting and all-round sporting enthusiast, and was brought to London to make his name. There, he would draw students and spectators to his academy, Figs Amphitheatre on Tottenham Court Road, he would be described as a master who was, quote, of rugged temper and would spare no man, high or low, who took up stick against him. And this business of stick-taking was very literal. Instruction aside, Fig would exhibit his skills at booths, rings, and fairs. For one such demonstration at Southwark, the bill promised a grand parade by the valiant Fig. And who wouldn't want to see such a thing? A spectacle, as the bill went on to say, in various combats, with the foil, backsword, cudgel, and fist. An exhibition in the ways of modern fighting. And this was not to be an exhibition in the kind of low-stakes way a fan of boxing might now understand that word. These were not thinly disguised cash grabs, with the shared understanding that nobody, or at least hardly anybody, was going to get hurt very much. These were bloody contests with staff, blade, and fist, that provided a predictably broader range of injuries than you'd see today. I think there might have been a similar drama to it, though. If drama with a sharper edge... Consider the case of Fig's 1727 clash with the Kentish champion, Ned Sutton. If the sources are to be believed, and there is every chance that they're not, or at least, not entirely, it went something like this. Twice before, the two had fought, and they'd apparently split the results. It was something Fig was not at all used to doing, if the records are to be believed, and again, they perhaps shouldn't be. I feel like win-loss records like this are a bit like estimates of armies in some medieval sources, with hundreds of thousands on this side, and a million on that. But the story goes that Fig's earlier loss to Sutton would be the only one on his otherwise sparkling 270-fight record. Make of that what you will. Make of the following what you will. On Wednesday, June 26th of 1727, they had the rubber match, the deciding third fight in their trilogy, and the pay-per-view conclusion to their rivalry. I've read that profits may have been diminished by King George's summer departure that took the elite of the aristocracy and no small number of wealthy fight fans along with him. Still, the audience that day apparently included Prime Minister Robert Walpole, Gulliver's Travels author Jonathan Swift, chatting with poet Alexander Pope, and an impressive range of politicians, actors, and writers, perhaps very much like today's celebrities in the crowd, hamming for the camera before the main event. Like today, there was an undercard. And also, rather like today, not everyone gave it their full attention. Fig's students came out to display their skills, but the audience wasn't there for them. They were too eager for the headliners. Finally, to shouts of appreciation from the crowd, Sutton and Fig made their appearance. Sutton was said to be the taller of the two, but not so much taller, as Fig was bigger. Bigger in biceps and back, legs and neck, and just more powerful in appearance. The stage was set, and everything made ready. Swords were to be first, then fists, and then cudgels. The sword portion of the match reads like the kind of heavyweight fight that is exciting more for its potential than for the violence itself. The kind of low action event that you watch in tension, knowing that a knockout ending could come at any second. Sometimes that anticipation can be the real source of the enjoyment. Not so much what's actually happening in front of you right now. This second. That's how it was here. The two did put on a show of thrust and parry. Nerves straining, sweat dripping, muscles twitching. But not a blow landed, not a touch made. For thirty minutes, they were said to have put on a wonderful display of skill. But then, as now, that wasn't always what the audience was there for. There was not, it was said, much there for most of the spectators to enjoy. Not at first. But the fight picked up. To the appreciation of the crowd, it opened up. The blades clashed and broke. Figs was forced back into his arm, cutting it open. Not a point-scoring blow. Fresh swords were brought, and quickly, Fig found success. He fainted his way in found an opening, and slashed across his opponent's shoulder. It was not a bad cut, but enough to give him the victory in the first portion of the event, and earn the enthusiastic applause of the crowd. For a half hour, the fighters rested, while the audience passed around cakes, breads, and ale. Fists were next. bare fists, naturally. Sutton is the aggressor here in the early moments, with Fig keeping his distance. Maybe he is just letting Sutton lose a little steam. They're looking for openings, and in eight minutes in, Fig thinks he sees one. But he's wrong and overcommits, and Sutton slips inside to lock hands around his waist. Fig is hoisted in the air, and after raining punches on his opponent's back, is dumped at the feet of the referees. The round, then counted by falls rather than sections of time, is over. He leaps up, and they begin again. Next round, it's Sutton's turn to fly, with the Gravesend fighter victim to a cross buttocks throw, and sent crashing to his back. He is shaken, but once rested, able to continue. In the third, Fig goes back to his striking. But like in the first, Sutton is too quick, too skilled to be hit. The round ends with a frustrated Fig closing in for another successful throw, though not so impactful as the last. The fourth round brings a change in momentum. Sutton is on the offensive and lands a staggering series of punches to Fig's head. He's got him stunned and. Pushed back to the edge of the stage. Then, and I'm really hearing Max Kellerman here, talking about Andre Ward, maybe to Andre Ward, about the importance of finishing to the body. And then, Sutton lands a final shot to the torso that sends his opponent sprawling off the edge. Fig is caught by some men in the audience who heave him back up on his hands and knees. And it's time for another quick rest. It's 15 minutes this time, and there's a re-energizing drink of port for the fighters, a bottle having been sent down by a helpful audience member. The fifth and sixth rounds would decide matters. Nothing much happens at first, except it's obvious that Sutton doesn't have his opponent's gas tank. He's the much more tired of the two, and soon makes a mistake. He closes in and tries to grip his enemy's head. The Fig is freshly shaved, and by now, extremely sweaty. Sutton's hands just slip off. Fig uses the opportunity to again secure a throw, and Sutton, again, goes crashing down, now hearing shouts and jeers from the onlookers. Maybe that was what really got to him. That, and the exhaustion, and the beating. When he gets up, he's clearly pissed, but this does not serve him well. He just eats punch after punch to the face, until, with Teddy Atlas somewhere shout-speaking about water in the basement, a body shot puts him down. Is it enough? shouts Fig, pinning him. A bloodied Sutton, nearly blinded, agrees that it is. That didn't mean the entire encounter was over, though. The cudgels were still to come. Honestly, though, after all of that, the cudgels portion seems a bit anticlimactic. There's only so much that whatever time and fortified wine were provided could do for the battered pipe-fitter. He's obviously exhausted, definitely concussed, and quite compromised. Fig lands a fight-ending blow to his knee, sometimes described as a bone-breaking one, and the trilogy is done. Fig had cemented his legacy as a fighter, and as something like a boxer. He had proven himself champion by his success with sword, staff, and something that is at least a bit like modern boxing, though perhaps somewhat more like MMA. James Figg may have fathered boxing, but it still had a lot of growing up to do. As for Figg himself, he would die in 1734 and receive the following obituary. Quote, Last Saturday, there was a trial of skill between the unconquered hero, Death on the one side, and till then the unconquered hero, Mr. James Figg, the famous prize fighter and master of the noble science of defense, on the other. The battle was most obstinately fought on both sides, but at last the former obtained an entire victory, and the latter. Though he was obliged to submit to a superior foe, Yet fearless and with disdain he retired, And that evening expired at his house in Oxford Road. As obituaries go, it's pretty great. As notes to end on, it's hard to beat. Everyone is tense with excitement.